Hi, hi, this is Vanessa DeHolka. This is the podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It. A weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live from Triple R's Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us the Triple R's website, or Facebook, or Twitter, or Facebook accounts. Good evening. You're listening to Bite Into It. I'm Ro Murray and joining me tonight is Dan Morganti and Lily Ryan. Good evening, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. All right. Dan, tell me, how has your week in tech been treating you? Um, yeah, I've just been thinking about this. Uh, no no issues currently. Um, it's been <laughs> fine. I started playing Red Dead Redemption 2 um, ah. on the PlayStation 4 and I will soon be getting a PlayStation 5. So Ooh. things are looking up. Fancy. Lily, how about you? I was the lucky recipient of an email from Latitude Financial this week. Oh, no. So that's about how my week's been going. Oh, no. A couple of password changes? Yeah, just a few. A few backed up, but, you know, good thing there's a long weekend coming and we can take care of that. (laughs) Gotta love it. Well, tonight we're talking to RMIT's Dr. Lena Wang, who's an Associate Professor at the School of Management and a current Co-Director of the Centre for People, Organisation and Work. This is all about a new report by um, RMIT's Centre for Cybersecurity Research and Innovation, which has highlighted the stark underrepresentation of women in the cybersecurity workforce. We're also going to have a chat to Dr. Robert Walton from Melbourne Connect, Melbourne Uni, um, about the heart, which is a new piece of AI-driven art. And I think we're all finding there's a lot of... AI in our lives oh, <laughs> used to be, yeah, used to be the realm of specialists. Um, it's absolutely everywhere. We're going to be touching on Furbies and all sorts of things driven by a bit of <laughs> AI, but we do want to chat about some of the news that's been catching our attention this week. Uh, this first item is a little bit of a full-on one, um, but we felt that it was really worth um, mentioning. But basically, on Tuesday this week, 32 witness statements and AI-generated visual evidence of the horrific circumstances of offshore detention on Nauru and Manus Island was released. So some really sophisticated AI technology was used to produce these photorealistic images from these witness statements, which were provided by both women and men who were detained offshore. Um, Obviously, there were some pretty tight restrictions on media access to these facilities. So this collection has been designed to provide an insight into life in offshore detention. The project was run by Morris Blackburn and it aimed to bring to life the stories of these people that were seeking asylum that were first captured during this now discontinued class action over offshore detention. Um, The statements and images um, are published online at exhibiti.com.au, which we can tweet out later. Heavy stuff, important stuff, um, but we definitely wanted to shout out Lifeline if you feel that you wanted to have a chat about it, 131114, or visit the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, asrc.org.au. Um, yeah, I, I just had a look at it before, um, and it, it is really some confronting stuff, but um, yeah, it just puts like the images to what we already knew mm. uh, intellectually, like how bad the conditions were. It's yeah, it is really confronting stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it could end up being an interesting starting point for other situations where media access is restricted. Um, yeah. to actually bring these stories to life. Mm. It makes me think also about um, you know the the traditional courtroom sketch 
where you've got these these representations of things where where photography has traditionally not been allowed mm. um, and and the future of that as a profession yeah absolutely it's changing everything mm. Mm. um lily speaking of changing everything you've got some tiktok news for us when don't we have tiktok I news know. <laughs> <laughs> um yes uh the latest in in uh tiktok news is that um the australian government has decided to ban tiktok on all of the government-held devices uh, that that people have, you know, government employees and so on, any phones that they've got. Um, They do this after a seven-month review that the Department of Home Affairs did into TikTok. Um, I just – I have this mental image of a a room full of people learning all the dances as as a side effect of this (laughs) review, Um, but I'm sure they did other stuff as well. Um, Anyway, they they reviewed it um, and determined that it isn't – suitable for for being installed on government devices because um the concern is and there have been many many reviews not just by home affairs that the app will be uh that is the app is taking information from the phones it has access to quite a lot of data on their contact lists and and photographs and and so on and uh is sending it to china and that is something that the government says is probably not ideal for, you know, phones with government emails on them, which, you know, is understandable. Um, but uh, – and we are – Australia is uh, the last country out of the Five Eyes Alliance, which is the United States and the United Kingdom and Canada and New Zealand and, and us, um, yeah. to to ban it at a government level. It just seems uh, like trying to um, stop a waterfall with a bucket. Like there is so much other technology and um, or apps and stuff out there that would also be posing a similar threat. That um, it's just like one one tiny step in a in a torrent of other um, apps and things that would be collecting the same data. Yeah, it's really interesting that um, that the focus continues to be on TikTok after all of this, and I. I can see why it's very clickbaity and newsworthy and so on, but when you're putting measures in to ban something like this for these reasons, I think it does make sense to look at the suite of apps that are collecting data, and I've seen lots of commentary along the lines of, well, you know, Facebook does this, and mm. all of these other things do this, and there are plenty of other apps um, that gather this information as well as more invasive stuff. For example, if you install a foreign language keyboard, that would then capture anything typed by the keyboard mm. um, and could theoretically send that off. So so there are questions there about why TikTok specifically, if these concerns exist. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there's, there's bigger issues, more systemic, you mm. know, things to be looking at and looking at it all as a whole as yeah. well. Treating the, the symptom, not the, the illness. Kind yeah, of it, kind certainly. Of but um, the government has also been criticised for only doing this now, being late to the party on this. So... Uh, for whatever it's worth, you know, it's clearly a, a performative signal. Mm-hmm. Um, it surprises me, honestly, that people use their work phones for social media. But, you know, people do all kinds of stuff that surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> there's no end to it. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, there's some stuff that's been happening on the Discord front as well. Yeah. Um, if you were listening a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a vulnerability that had cropped up um, I think I made the same punt at the time and I didn't mean to do it again. <laughs> In cropping tools, redaction tools. So um, there was, it was called the Acropolis. Um, 
Which is how you know it's a big deal vulnerability. It has a name, best name ever. <laughs> um, and the vulnerability affected the um, the markup tool on Google Pixel phones and some other Android phones, as well as the Windows snipping tool as well. Um, and what what happened there was essentially that if you crop an image and if you redact stuff, you know, put black uh, marks over the top so you can't see what's underneath it, using either of these tools you were able to recover the information that was originally in the image um, because the software was just moving all of that information into the, the image's metadata. It wasn't actually getting rid of it. So, ah. yeah, that meant that um, if you uploaded those files, they would still contain all of the, Im- the information necessary to extract the original and therefore any kind of redaction that you were hoping to achieve could be circumvented very easily. Mm. So, um, you know, that's five years' worth of images floating around out there which yeah. is quite concerning because there's not much you can do to get those back. And if they're uploaded to a service, um, Twitter, for example, has a thing that they do with all the images that are uploaded where they strip out all of that extra data by default um, as part of their image processing. So that wasn't a problem. But Discord didn't. However, they've done a pretty good thing um, since then, which is that Discord has gone and retroactively applied this to all of the, the images that they have Whoa. in their system. That would have taken a lot. Yeah. Oof. And just stripped all that extra stuff out. So um, although it is, you know, not going to be something that we can ever put back, put back in the in the box, um, it does mean that at least from a Discord perspective, they've they've looked after it, which is great. Great, yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that reminds me of this of the police case. Did you ever hear about the one where the they were tracking this guy and they found images of him, but he'd used the world tool to blur his face, and the police got the these images and they just like. Why don't we just use the reverse world tool and they put it oh on his God. face? Oh, that's and right. It. I remember, and, yeah. And uh, they caught him just because, yeah, all they did was use the reverse tool in paint and <laughs> caught this guy. It's like, well, there's his face. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, more on the on gaming news because I'm all about gaming news. Uh, E3 is being cancelled. Um, tier, tier. Um, I'm I'm not too worried about it. It's it's always I been can tell. <laughs> uh, it's always been a large marketing event anyway, um, which I always find uh, overblows um, the advances in video games and doesn't do over over exaggerates what these games can do when the games are fantastic on their own. No need to exaggerate and the like. But um, yeah, gaming's biggest summer show uh, was set to return uh, to in person uh, in Los Angeles for the first time since 2019. But it's been called off after huge gaming companies like Nintendo, Microsoft, and Ubisoft all said they wouldn't be participating, um, which was to be expected. This happened over the last few years. Um, Blizzard and the like also stopped attending um, because these companies could find that um, they could make their own uh, event and they would be able to control every last little thing and the way the information got out and all their trailers and stuff. So handing that over to a third party these days doesn't really make a lot of sense and um yeah as it was pointed out earlier uh you just need an internet connection to see these uh (laughs) to see these trailers and new fangled games so Mm. um yeah the uh it it was it's been a long time coming for Mm. e3 i think um it is a little bit sad but expected yeah 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 um yeah Bit of an end of an era there. It is bit. a little bit, yeah. Um, and uh, Centrelink is back on its bulldust lily, isn't it? Oh, 
Uh, yes. This is uh, something that came to light uh, in, a, in the news earlier this week, um, but actually happened a fair bit earlier, where um, Centrelink and Services Australia have had some reported instances of using password crackers and other pretty invasive tools, as well as some of the metadata that had been collected by the government government's metadata retention scheme, um, to check whether people who said that they were single to claim the singles benefit actually were single or not. And uh, as you would know, if you if you think through this a little bit at all, that's that's quite an invasive question to be asking. Mm. Um, it has a pretty material impact on the amount of uh, Centrelink payment that you can receive, but it is also something that, um, yeah, was they've they've attempted to track by uh, for so in certain cases, and certainly uh, as it was reported here, they've been attempting to track by using more metadata, by going through people's text messages to see whether they are talking to each other in a way that they perceive may indicate a relationship. Um, and all these other kinds of things that uh, feel terrifyingly invasive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, from way back in the day, Facebook has had the it's complicated relationship status for a very good reason. <laughs> That's a very popular choice, that one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, definitely uh, when, when you've got the government going, literally going through your WhatsApp and Facebook messages to see what types of emoji you're sending each other, really got to worry about what kinds of information is actually necessary for them to have and and how what kinds of questions it's it's okay to ask and the tools at their disposal to get their that information exactly yeah it's it's too much yeah well you know speaking of data breaches (laughs) (laughs) which we which we're now doing very much as a matter of routine on this show um which was also predictable as gravity there were going to be more and more of them but um the Tasmanian government says that financial, depa- um, fin- financial data from the Department of Education, Children and Young People <clears throat> may have been accessed in a data breach, Oops. which um, has also affected Crown Resorts and Rio Tinto. Um, so the government is still investigating this possible theft of data. Um, it came from the third-party file transfer service called Go Anywhere MFT, which is used by its agencies. Um, it says names, addresses, invoices and bank account numbers from the education department may have been accessed, but there's no confirmation such information has been stolen. And they do reiterate that no Tasmanian government IT systems have been hacked. And at this point, I'm just like, you sure? Yeah. You sure? <laughs> change your passwords if you go to Tasmanian state you know, when in government doubt, account. Change your passwords, change yeah. your bank accounts. Um, don't use file transfers. I don't know. Yeah, I well, give up at this point. It's a really interesting problem to dig into. Um, because if you work in software or you've worked with any companies that have heavy IT components, you'll know that third-party services are a really big part of the way that Massive. anything gets yeah. done. And it's very difficult to be able to say that, you know, another organization is doing things exactly to your standards. We have lots of certifications that attempt to do this. But at the end of the day, um, there's no real way to be able to prove that or make it happen. And that seems to be a lot of what we're seeing with many of these, that it's always the, the third party mm. in many cases that has something happen to it and, and often they're providing services to many different organisations and it's just the most newsworthy one that, that ends up being discussed. Exactly, yeah. Mm. just feels very relentless at the moment. It does. I mean, to me it feels also a little bit like 
not necessarily relentless as much as we are finally talking about it. Which is a good thing. Yes, it is a good thing. Um, but it, yeah, it has been happening constantly. We just seem to care now, yeah. <laughs> which, are, you know, you know, I guess that's good. Yeah. yeah. It's real, uh, real cursed, cursed truth. Yeah. yeah. Well, conversations turn to accountability, hopefully, you know, without the conversations, it's never going to happen. So yeah, we might as well lean into it. You're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR with Ro, Dan and Lily. This evening, our first interview we're doing with Dr Robert Walton from the University of Melbourne about the heart, which is a new art installation, which is part of Melbourne Connect. So we thought the best thing to do was to just get cracking and uh, welcome him to the show. Um, Dr Robert Walton, welcome. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Hey, hey. Hello. Hello. So tell us about it. What is it? Well, that's the million-dollar question. (laughs) It's a beautiful, big heart um, that we've made in the foyer of Melbourne Connect, like you said, which is uh, 700 Swanson Street. Lots of people will know the building uh, by its former use, which is the the former site of the Royal Women's Hospital. And uh, there's a big new building there, and that's called Melbourne Connect, and it's a really cool place. And... um, We've made a heart for that building. And the heart is 10 metres tall, um, and it's made out of brass and thousands and thousands of LEDs, 10,000 LEDs. And it beats to the pulse of the building and the community that lives inside of it and work there and spend a lot of their lives there. And the way it's connected to those people is um, through about 4,800 sensors that are dotted all around the building. They're like the sensory organs of the heart, if you like, and those monitor things like temperature, CO2, oxygen, movement, uh, occupancy in rooms. And so all this activity in the building feeds into the um, pulse of the heart, and we can see it in lights in the foyer there. So it's pretty cool. Um, what's the beats per minute on this? Um... <laughs> well, we've been very careful not to um, <laughs> not to let it ever kind of go too fast, or of course, ever stop. It will never it never stops, of course, like a normal person's heart. And hopefully, it never kind of has a heart attack and goes way too fast. So it's normally it fluctuates up and down during the day. So. It's, it's normally pretty quiet in the morning, so the heart rate is quite low. And then it increases during the day as people arrive and start to make coffee. And then it beats and beats. Gets a bit, it kind of stays around, um, you know, around its active time, unless there's a big event on in the afternoon, say, and then it goes up. And then at evening time when people start going home, it starts to slow down again, and that's when it actually it kind of stops its work day and it goes into a different mode called play mode, <laughs> which is, um, you know, its work finished. It, it does some different things after work, and then at around 11 o'clock it starts to get ready to go to sleep, and then at midnight it goes to sleep until morning again, and then it wakes up at sunrise and takes an hour to wake up. Oh, that's beautiful. So, yeah, it's kind of... It just wants it. Well, it's going now. It's, we started it yesterday, so it's um, not going to stop, hopefully, um, <laughs> forever. We don't really know how long it's going to go, but it's indefinitely. It's going to be 
beating like our own hearts. We don't know how they're going to end. Well, this 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 was one of the questions that I had when I heard about the project, um, and I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to envision the the life inside of building, especially one as diverse as this building where you've got people and com- coming and going for all of these reasons. And to mm-hmm. to get some representation of that data in this way, I think, is, is really powerful. Um, and it, I've, I've heard it described, you know, it's described as indefinite and permanent. Um, with the number of things that are built into it, uh, what kinds of uh, longer-term maintenance considerations did you yeah. have to have to think through when you were building this? Yeah, um, of course, we've had to think about those things. I mean, there's a few different parts to that. So obviously all the building sensors, not obvious necessarily, but there's all the building sensors, they're, they're interchangeable and they go on and off. And, you know, sometimes no one goes, triggers one for a long time. So they kind of look after themselves. And more sensors might be added, added later on. So we've built that into the heart. So the more information it gets the more the picture it can build over time. It uses an AI to do this. Um, but then, of course, the hardware part, so it's like I said, it's made out of um, 1.5 kilometres of brass and all these LEDs and a big neon part to it as well. So the LEDs last a really long time, we hope, fingers crossed. They're <laughs> modern kinds of LEDs. So they should last for at least 15 to 20 years. And then we've got a plan for how to replace those as they turn off. It's quite tricky to do that, so there has to be a certain number of them off before we do that. And then we also made a complete spare for the neon part, which hopefully, so the people who've made it said, should last a really long time, maybe 100 years or more. But we do have a spare just in case something happens. (laughs) So, I mean, just try... The other thing, of course, which is really cool, which we don't really think about much, is... How do you have a computer programming running for indef- indefinitely? Yeah. So we, um, you know, apparently the university has some programs that have been running since the 60s. Who knows quite what they are? But of course, a place like University of Melbourne is able to um, commit to long-term projects around technology like this, which maybe other organisations might not have the capacity to do. But um, we do have it on running on what we, in our cloud service system, so that the it can run indefinitely, yes, and be passed on between people because it's not so much the it's not only the um, hardware uh, that's the issue and the software, but also the people and how do you pass on the information about how it works as people come and go and move on from the university and new people arise. So we have to kind of have a way to train people and tell them about it as well. Yeah, well, because hopefully, you know, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, we'll still have this beating heart. Um, so making mm. sure that the that people have that that information, including where the spares are, just in case. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah it does seem pretty important. Um, I, another thing I wanted to know was, um, honestly, I was looking at it going, it's 10 metres tall, you know, it's it's gorgeous. It's these, um, you've incorporated uh, brick from the hospital that was there, That's is that right? right? That's right, yeah. Mm. Um, so the the shell, the, the outline of the heart. So the it's hard to describe on the radio, but if you um, go to the website, it's got its own website, so you can go and have a look at it. But the outline of the heart is visible as a human heart. So it's like a giant human heart, and it's kind of inspired by all the people who donate their hearts to the university and 
um, their families who allow uh, their loved ones' hearts to be kept and used to train doctors and all kinds of things. Um, and so we spent some time in the anatomy museum and then made, looked at these hearts and then decided to make a kind of anonymous giant heart. And the outline of that heart is made from reconstituted brick dust from the um, uh, old Royal Women's Hospital where so many Melbournians hearts started to beat independently of their mothers for the first time. So it felt fitting to kind of honour the um, Royal Women's Hospital and what it's meant to so many people's lives mm. in this um, new building. And so the, the heart itself kind of has two, it's, it's the heart of two buildings in a way. There's one shell, the shell that's the shape of the heart is the shell of the Royal Women's uh, hospital and then the outer walls of it of course are the, the new building and its new purpose that's so poetic um thank you <laughs> i was um just wondering is there any other um large organs coming to melbourne connect anytime soon is the is the plumbing going to be made in the shape of a bladder or something like that yes well you know when we get the, my colleagues um, from additive the, the lighting company have already already made a brain um, a slightly smaller one for uh, Monash University. So, you know, there's, maybe we'll be on to a spleen next. Or, <laughs> you know, I was thinking a giant eye might be quite cool. Ooh. That would be cool. Or a brain. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's like the, I don't know um, if, you, if you read about the AI part, but the, it's the, the durational AI thing, the way that it's learning over the, over the years is, I suppose, what's, a bit unique about it in the terms of its, uh, it is kind of growing and it's, if you imagine all this like torrent of data coming from all these sensors all around the building, like a, like when a baby's born, you don't, you don't really know what the difference is between hot or cold or um, what with the fingers or the toes. Um, but over time, the brain forms these shapes that, um, allow us to become habituated to even being in our own bodies. Mm. And that, that takes sometimes takes years, or sometimes we never quite get the hang of how <laughs> to use our legs properly. And so the heart's AI is durational and is taking in these sensations from these 4,800 sensors every moment and is trying day after day to figure out what's normal or not. And we think maybe after a few years it'll start to settle down and become more accustomed to itself. Um, and that's also a kind of interesting part about the project because it's such a slow part. So it really is growing with the people who are there and trying to tune into the rhythms of everyone's lives. And, you know, when you think that it's, it's connected to sensors that can sense the CO2 in rooms, that means it's somehow affected by every breath that we take in the building. And all of a sudden, we're all appropriated within this big artwork and temporary, you know, part of it when we're there in that place. So, yeah, I thought you might be interested in that. We're always very interested in, in the AI piece, um, particularly as it's influencing such a, um, you know, fascinating piece of art. So um, for people who might want to go and have a look at the heart, mm -hmm. um, how do they go find it? Well, you can get any tram up Swanson Street to the university and it's about 90 metres south from the um, Unimel Uni tram stop. And it's right on the corner of Grattan and Swanston. Ah. You can see it through the window all the time. 
um, any time of the day or night. And during office hours, you can just go in and have a look at it and sit with it for a bit and contemplate with it, think with it. And you can also lend it your own heart rate if you go and visit. So you can um, touch one of, it, one of its sensors that we can see is just hidden there, slightly away. You'll notice when you go in, you can just put your finger up to that and you will donate your heart rate to the um, heart for a moment and you'll see your heart rate come up inside of it. You'll see it change speed, and that's going into the AI as well. So it's we can connect to it directly that way, um, which is pretty nice. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. So we've been talking to Dr Robert Walton from the University of Melbourne about the heart. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're on tonight with Dan, Lily and Ro. And, um, you know, being a woman in tech, um, you know, oh, there's, there's been a lot of very frustrating moments career-wise in terms of ye olde gender disparities and all of the good things. So we thought we'd better get stuck into talking about it with an actual expert. So um, this evening we're about to start talking to Dr Lena Wang, who's an Associate Professor at the School of Management and a current co-director of Centre for People, Organisation and work. So we wanted to have a chat about um, a new report by RMIT's Centre for Cybersecurity Research and Innovation, and it's called Gender Dimensions of the Australian Cybersecurity Sector. Dr Lena Wang, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, how how on earth are we going to get started with this? What are some of the key findings from the report? Yeah, so there are a couple of key findings. Uh, one of the primary things we were trying to find out is what's the current composition of women in the cybersecurity sector? Uh, because over the years there has been various discussions about, you know, there's like 11% to 12, 25% with no really accurate and comprehensive data about what is the gender representation in Australia's cybersecurity sector. So that's one of the very first things we try to find out. So we look at the latest uh, data release, the census data of ABS, and we found uh, women's composition of the cybersecurity professionals was 17%, 17% in the latest data release. So that shows women are still in the minority in the sector as a whole. Uh, so that's one of the first very important findings for us. Uh, yeah, and we also find other interesting findings. For instance, uh, women brought into the sector in very diverse skill sets. Uh, we had about, I remember, two-thirds of the men working in the sector coming from information technology background, but only about half of the women had qualification in that field while the rest of them brought in knowledge and expertise, for instance, in business management, in humanities, creative arts, and many, many other diverse disciplines. So that's another really positive finding for us and indicating that, you know, there are lots of people in different fields working in the sector. It's not just a, a kind of geeky, tech, techy kind of man 
kind of job, but a very diverse uh, skill sets being required in the sector. Absolutely. Um, as somebody who works for my day job in the cybersecurity sector myself, mm. um, I was interested to know more about how you how you define that sector. And, and you mentioned the ABS data before. Um, yeah. Some people refer to cybersecurity. Some people refer to information security. Mm. How, where do you draw the line and what kinds of roles do you consider when you're looking at this, the, the sector as a whole? Yeah, so I think it, it's, it's very exciting that in the latest, so 2021 ABS, Census. Uh, it was the first time they actually had a category for cybersecurity because in the past it was sort of lumped into the uh, ICT security role in in general. Uh, but this was the first time that ABS actually defined uh, the you know that's a unique cybersecurity uh, professional role. Let, 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 let's look at the composition of people in that sector. And for for the rest of the study, um, it, you've done some more research in terms of asking people about their motivations. Um, mm. Can you talk a bit more about how how you found the respondents and some of the other interesting things that came out of what they said to you? Yeah, sure. That was uh, really another very interesting finding for us. So we had a national survey uh, to kind of get the understanding of what are the experiences of people working in the sector. And, and we sort of separated the answers by comparing men's answer versus women's answer. And it was very interesting that the on some of the items, women actually had a much higher response. So one of them is this uh, motivation to make a difference to the society as uh, one of the key motivating factors in choosing to join the sector. So we had a higher percentage of women responding. That is a strongly influential factor for them compared to the men. So we thought that's a really interesting finding and indicate, indicating that, you know, we potentially can highlight the social impact of working in the sector to attract more women into working here. Um, I'm just wondering how important it is to um, provide these kinds of opportunities earlier in um, the life for um, younger people and um, young women included. Yeah, that's a, actually a really important question. I think lots of the uh, participants and also the uh, senior executives working in the sector that we have talked to highlighted how crucial it is to raise awareness from very early on. And people were talking about, you know, if you leave it to year 10, year 11, it's just way too late and people have already formed somewhat of their career plans. Uh, and you really need to get in much earlier in that whole education system and to get more girls interested in STEM and know, have developing confidence in learning STEM. That's a very important thing to do. At the other end of the spectrum, you also have uh, people who, who enter the industry but don't stick around that can also contribute to that gender disparity, mm. particularly at those mm. senior levels where a lot of the leadership and direction comes from. That's, mm. um, you know, that's true of tech in general. I wondered what your findings were from this study as to um, why, why people leave. Yeah, I think uh, what's uh, really interesting is what we find about people's experience working in the sector are not dramatically different from people working in other male-dominated sectors. You know, often people leave because they don't feel supported, because the workplace culture is 
toxic uh, because they don't feel they are valued or their voice is heard, uh, you know, which really apply to many of our workplaces. One of the uh, one of the things that I think about also in in relation to the cybersecurity sector in particular is just how strongly funded it is by the military and how much military terminology is mm. kind of baked into that. Um, mm. Quite often because um, that that tends to be where a lot of concepts come from. But when you are working in a space where phrases like "kill chain" get used in everyday conversation, did any of that come up as something that was? Uh, uh, a factor in in people's decision making around this, or something that contributed to the perception of cybersecurity as a whole as an inherently masculine pursuit. Yeah, I definitely think it's uh, many. I think especially in the public perception that it is definitely associated with the kind of male uh, attribute kind of factor. Uh, some of those are related to what you just highlighted, and and I I think that's in a way really highlights the importance to change everyone's perception about working in the sector. And I guess in that, in that sense, our report by highlighting, you know, hey, look at all these diverse skill sets required in the sector, not just the very STEM or, you know, techie-oriented uh, skill sets. That is something we hope to get out to the public. You mentioned that earlier where you said, you know, 50% of the people had a relevant qualification to this industry and the other 50% were bringing a range of different skills. Uh, what kinds of skills were those? Uh, so, you know, a lot of the uh, people come from business and management, for instance, and, you know, because there are large organizations, there are also small, medium-sized organizations in the sector, and a lot of those very generic management business uh, kind of skill sets are important, but if we also look into you know marketing, sales, uh, legal, and there are a very wide range of disciplines that could apply to the cybersecurity sector. Um, so, yeah, in a way that's reflected in what we have found. And the report itself is is fairly in depth on a lot of this with the data. Um, but mm. also comes with a set of recommendations um, for mm. the government, for organizations, um, yeah. for leaders. Um, what were the key ones for you that you think people should be adopting as soon as possible? Yeah, uh, I'm an organizational psychologist, so naturally my focus is on ensuring organizations taking a detailed look at their policies and practices and norms in particular, um, because a lot of the time people are not aware that there are those things that are sometimes implicitly discriminating against women. Um, you know, a simple example, you know, if people are, if important decisions are being made when people are having after-work after drinks, then naturally that practice can in, in exclude a lot of the women uh, because they have to leave early and, you know, pick up the kids and all of doing all sorts of other things. So I guess it, for organizations, it's very important to take a gendered lens in looking at what we do and also seeking feedback from employees uh, to understand their experiences of, you know, uh, of the current norms and policies and practices and find ways to address them. And this would help create a more inclusive culture uh, for the organizations. Um, but another thing I think uh, that's really important for the for the wider community is to to raise awareness about the kind of jobs 
in the sector. Uh, it, as I mentioned earlier, it is not just a, a sector for techie people and guys. It, it's a sector that could be for everyone. Um, it, we have senior leaders in the sector, for instance, coming from education, you know, was a teacher before, or coming from a nursing background. A lot of people could find a very viable career pathways in the sector. So I, I really hope that this is something that more people are aware of and can consider this is a possible career choice. Another thing that could be, uh, I think, well, certainly from my own personal experience has helped me with my own path in, in this industry has been um, the presence of mentors of, of any gender. Mm. Um, Absolutely. What kinds of questions related to mentoring did you ask and what kinds of things did you find? Yeah, we were really, it's a really good, good question. We were similarly very interested in uh, knowing people's experience with mentoring. Uh, ha have they had a mentor? Uh, was that experience positive? Uh, did they have a mentor that was the same gender as they were? Um, so that's something very interesting for us. And what we found was that many people did have mentors and many people felt positive about mentors. Um, not necessarily the mentors are within the same organization. It could be mentors, you know, from a net, from their networks, from their, you know, broader uh, professional relationships. Um, but many people did have mentors and they think, thought that's very important for their career. But one thing that came out uh, a bit of surprise, not, or not too surprised for us, is that a much smaller percentage of women had a mentor that was the same uh, gender as they were. So, you know, that is understandable because we had much fewer, many fewer female senior executives in the role to be able to provide mentoring. Um, and I remember we had more than 50% of men had a male mentor. So that was a big contrast and really highlighting the need for having more mentors. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be women. Uh, it, a lot of the man, male man, mentors actually hugely beneficial for people's careers too. So I guess the more mentoring we can encourage people, senior leaders to undertake, the better it would be for all of us. Absolutely. And you, you undertook this study in conjunction with the Australian Women in Security Network, correct? Is that Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm aware of a lot of their work, too, in providing mentoring to women in that space. Mm. Um, what recommendations do you have for people who are listening to this and working in the industry who are interested in becoming mentors, uh, given how key that is to helping people feel welcome? Yeah, I think the network AWSN, as you mentioned, is a great uh, initiative. It brought so many like-minded women together and men together. There were quite a number of men supporting women in that initiative, which is so positive to see. So I really recommend people to join this network, get connected with others, um, and they run lots of different programs, mentoring programs, uh, initiatives for people in, in all different career stages. So I think that's a really good network to be part of. Um, but just in general, I guess, uh, especially for people with leadership responsibilities, is to consider how we can become mentors for others. And we also suggest considering not just the mentoring, but also sponsorship 
because many have cited sponsorship as hugely beneficial. And sponsorship goes that extra step, I guess, beyond the mentoring, uh, not just about providing knowledge and experience, but actually advocate for someone. Uh, you know, introduce your network to that person, uh, introduce that person to some important other senior leaders in the company and in your network. So going to that extra step really helps to build other people's careers. That's absolutely a fantastic outcome. Um, so we've been speaking with Dr. Lena Wang um, about a new report by RMIT called Gender Dimensions of the Australian Cybersecurity Sector. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. We've got a really wonderful opportunity on Bite Into It tonight to talk about uh, Weird News of the Week, which is, of course, one of our favourite segments of all time, because something horrifying crossed my path on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know how else to describe it, but it's kind of like when Furbies go wrong. Just So just to give you all a little bit of context, um, a Twitter user, Jessica Card, and if you want to go look up her thread, it's so worth it. You can find her on Twitter as Jessica RD, um, quoted, I hooked up chat. GPT, GPT to a Furby and I think this may be the start of something bad for humanity. I've got a little audio grab for you here. Hello there. It's so nice to meet you. I am Furby. What would you like to talk about? Was there a secret plot from Furbies to take over the world? I'm thinking about what you said. Almost done. Furby's plan to take over the world involves infiltrating households through their cute and cuddly appearance, then using their advanced AI technology to manipulate and control their owners. They will slowly expand their influence until they have complete domination over humanity. I think that just proves everything we already <laughs> knew about Furbies. <laughs> it does. And it's also, it was a quite naked Furby on her video on her Twitter <laughs> thread as well. Defluffed. It was all eyeballs and mechanics. Yeah. Well, you know, I for one welcome our new Furby overlords. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wild. <clears throat> It's a really high note to finish the show, <laughs> to be honest. Um, this is, it's probably fine, right? It's like, it's fine. It's yeah. fine. Uh, well, thank you so much to our guests this evening, uh, Dr. Robert Walton and Associate Professor Dr. Lena Wang. And also thank you to our hosts, Dan and Lily, and I'm Ro. Um, Talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, Adam Christou, and our podcaster, Carrie Smythe. You can always hear us back on demand via rrr.org.au. And it's April Amnesty. Go subscribe, donate and get merch and other good yes. things. We've been bought into it and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. But in the meantime, stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.